0: Church, go and grab your Bibles with me this morning and uh, open up to the book of Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm 25. If you're visiting with us this morning, just so you know, our normal pattern as a church is we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. So we will normally start in chapter 1, verse 1, and we will preach through a section at a time until we get to the end of the book. But our habit over the last couple years has been that in between those bigger book studies... We've taken some time to turn our attention to the Psalms. And so we've taken seven or eight Psalms to study through in between those different studies. And so this morning, it's going to be Psalm 25. And just to kind of remind you of what we're looking at here, um, the Psalms are designed to show us how to praise God and how to pray to God during all the different circumstances in our lives. So if you were trying to disciple a new Christian on how to pray or Maybe you're a new Christian, and you're trying to figure out what prayer looks like. Well, probably the first place you would want to go would be to the Lord's Prayer. That's where Jesus lays out this skeleton outline of prayer. He shows us the kinds of of things we should be praying for. But while the Lord's Prayer shows us what to pray, the Psalms show us how to pray. So the Psalms show us what believing prayer looks like, in all the nitty gritty of life because let's face it life can be like a roller coaster we have all sorts of situations and all sorts of emotions and there are days where you get up and you feel like your heart is going to explode in gratitude everything is great and your life is soaring and then there are other days you get up and the troubles are pressing in so tightly it feels like you can hardly breathe well the Psalms show us how to commune with God through all of those different ups and downs. I've mentioned to you before that I think the Puritans hit the nail on the head when they said that the Psalms are a medicine chest for the soul. We don't have a medicine chest in our house per se. What we have instead is this big plastic bin that is just filled with every sort of medicine bottle and ointment you can imagine. It sits on the top shelf in our closet. And whatever you're struggling with, you can turn to that medicine chest. If if it's springtime and your eyes are watering because of allergies, you can find a bottle. To, it might be from 1997, but you can find a peel bottle in there that will help. If you cut your hand and you need some ointment and a Band-Aid, you can find something in there. If, if you're running a fever, if you've got a headache and need some Advil, you can find it. So whatever ails you, there's something in that bin that will help. Well, that's what the Psalms are spiritually. They are a medicine chest for the soul. So what about Psalm 25? Let me just give you a couple preliminary thoughts. First, Psalm 25 has a unique artistic style to it. There are about eight or ten psalms that are known as acrostic psalms. And what that means is they go letter by letter through the Hebrew alphabet. So the way it works in Psalm 25, verse 1 starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Verse 2 starts with the second letter. Verse 3 starts with the third letter. And it goes through the whole alphabet following that pattern. So that's the basic pattern that the psalmist uses here. So there's a certain artistic flair that he's using in this psalm. That's one thing. Secondly, Psalm 25 is another psalm of lament. If you've been here during these studies, you know that psalms of lament show us how to pour out our hearts to God when we're suffering. And remember now, roughly a third of the psalms are psalms of lament. That tells us something. Why is it that God gives us roughly 50 psalms that show us how to pour out our hearts when we're hurting? Well, He gives us so many because we better know how to pray when we're hurting. Because we're in a fallen world and life is going to be filled with suffering. And so lament is, is like the prayer language for suffering Christians. It shows us... How to pray to God in our hurt. Okay, one other thing. Another thing you'll notice as we read this psalm in just a minute is there's no real clear flow to it. So lots of David's psalms, there will be a clear logical order. It's not hard to outline. But every commentary that you read on this psalm makes the point that there's no clear orderly structure to it. David is all over the map. He hits this, and then he hits this, and then he comes back to this. When I first read through this a few weeks back, trying to think about it, my first thought when I read it was, "No, what am I going to do with this? Because it's it's just all over the place, and I was trying to think why that would be. And then last Sunday night, before I left, I read Psalm 25 again, and on my way home, the thought dawned on me, well, it is a psalm of lament. In other words, David is writing this in the throes of suffering. So let me ask you, what do your prayers usually look like when you're suffering? Are they neat and orderly? No, they're not. it's It's confessing sin and p- begging for relief and pleading for God. and it's it's sort of emotion and faith and struggle and desperation all rolled into one. Well that's that's what this psalm is for David. okay, so it's all over the place because David is just pouring out his heart to the Lord in his suffering. And so we're just going to try to walk with David through this kind of meandering lament this morning. And we're going to start by reading it. So if you have your Bibles open to Psalm 25, we're going to read it in its entirety. And just notice how David bounces back and forth between different themes. Psalm 25, David wrote these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindness. For they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me. For your goodness' sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, Pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he shall show them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I'm desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look on my affliction and my pain, and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed for I put my trust in You. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for You. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. You see how it's all over the place? But there, there are three main requests that David bounces between in this, and that's what we'll see. There's a, there's a request for relief. There's a request for guidance. And there's a request for forgiveness. So you'll see that come up a lot. So let's just walk through this psalm. Here's the first thing David does. Number one, there is a declaration of faith. A declaration of faith. David says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Oh, my God, I trust in you. Now, it's important David starts this way. Because David is clearly struggling... He's surrounded by enemies, and he feels like his enemies have the upper hand. And on top of what's happening on the outside, David is in knots on the inside. He tells us later that he feels all alone. He feels like his troubles are pressing in on him. He's struggling with guilt over his past sins. He feels confused in the moment. And so all of his circumstances and all of his emotions are telling David that there's no hope. All of his emotions are telling David... That he's all alone. But David knows that's not true. And so he starts this prayer declaring what he knows is true about God. This is sort of like David in the middle of his troubles. Listen, this is a good way to start your prayers when you're struggling. In the middle of this emotional turmoil, David starts by declaring what is true for him. What he knows is true about God. And that's where David says, to you, O Lord, that's Yahweh, to you, O Yahweh, I lift up my soul. Do you remember that language from last week, that lift up my soul? Psalm 24, where David says, who can ascend the hill of the Lord and who can stand in the holy place? And what's the answer? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and does not same language, does not lift up his soul to an idol. Lifting up your soul to something is the idea of giving yourself over in worship, like you would lift up an offering at the altar. So to lift up your soul implies commitment and worship and surrender. So all of that is tied up in that phrase from David. So he starts this prayer by committing himself into God's hands. His circumstances are hard and his emotions are swirling. But David's heart and his life and his worship belongs to God. In fact, did you notice how personal the language is? David doesn't just address God by saying, Oh God, he addresses God by saying, Oh my God. And I should pause and say, Oh my God is a prayer. It's not an exclamation. So if you're in the habit of using that phrase as an exclamation, stop. That's what's called taking God's name in vain. Stop doing it. This is a prayer from David, and David uses this very personal language. He's not just God, he's my God. And there's a history to that. Just like I wouldn't say that Courtney is a wife, I would say she is my wife. There's personalness to that, and there's history there, right? We have pledged ourselves to each other. We've exchanged vows. I know her. I trust her. That's what's tied up, in David saying, oh, my God. That's why he follows that by saying, look at the next phrase. He says, I trust in you. I don't trust in my cleverness. I don't trust in my charisma. I don't trust in the size of my army. I trust in you. And church, you realize that while David is saying this to God, he is also saying this for himself. And because it's written as a psalm, he is also saying this for us. I mean, think about it. Why do we sing the songs that we sing as a church? We sang earlier, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer, strong defender of my weary heart. My sword to fight the cruel deceiver. And my shield against his hateful darts. My song when enemies surround me. My hope when tides of sorrow rise. My joy when trials are abounding. What are we doing when we sing that? Yeah, we're praising God. We are making much of God. He is all of those things. But that's not all we're doing. We sing songs like that also to remind ourselves and to remind each other. Because here's what I need. When trials are abounding, I need help remembering God is my hope. When enemies surround me, I need help remembering that God is to be my song. And so David is saying this to praise God, and he's saying this to recalibrate his heart. Man, we need to do that in our suffering. It's kind of like what often happens with any sort of computer system. So for instance, if you have DirecTV or Dish Network or something at your house, and you're having problems getting it to work right, and you call the customer service line because it's not acting right, what do they almost always tell you to do? Almost always they will say, well, go to the wall and unplug it. And wait 10 seconds and then plug it back in. Because the idea is you you need to reset the system. That's what the first part of this prayer is for David, because he is embroiled in so many emotions. He is swimming. It's hard to see straight. And he starts this prayer recalibrating his heart toward God. But here's the second thing. Number two, there's a prayer for relief. Second half of verse 2 and on into verse 3, David starts laying out his troubles to the Lord. And just to kind of give you a preview, what you find out is David has troubles on the outside and he has troubles on the inside. It's like the old invitation hymn that we sing, Just As I Am... Though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt. And then what's the next line? You remember it? Fightings within and fears without. O Lamb of God, I come. Well, that's David's going to describe in this psalm, he has fightings within and he has fears without. But he starts on what's happening without. Look at the end of verse 2 going into verse 3. David says, Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. So what does David have? It's causing problems in his life. David has enemies. And what do David's enemies want? They want to leave David utterly ashamed. That means they want David humiliated. They want David left totally embarrassed. They want David to be proved to be a phony. They want David strung out to drive. They want David to be left alone by God. And so David's asking God here to come to his aid. He's basically saying, Lord, intervene. That's a good thing to pray in trouble. We'll come back to this point later. Here's the third thing. Number three, there's a prayer for guidance. Verses four and five. David says, show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you're the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. What's one of the things that happens when you're suffering? One of the things that happens is a a fog sort of settles in on your life, doesn't it? it? It can get where it's hard to know the next step. It's hard to know decisions to make. It's hard to know what to do. It can be confusing. This fog can settle in on your life. That's what David is praying about here. So did you notice there are three requests in a row? He says, show me, teach me, lead me. And what is he wanting God to teach him exactly? He gets three descriptors. David says, I want to see your ways, your paths, your truth. So this fog has settled in, but David wants God to help him walk down the path of God's truth. I'll tell you something else that can happen in our suffering. Is suffering can make a pretty convenient excuse sometimes. Have you experienced this in your life? Sometimes when I'm going through a hard situation, I can use my pain to justify doing all sorts of wrong things. I can use my suffering to justify me doing all sorts of personal sins. I'll give you a couple of things you hear often. So it's not unusual to hear somebody say, that church hurt me, I'm never going back to church again. Now, can it be true that a church can hurt you? Yeah. You know why? Because churches are filled with sinner, sinning people who found faith in, or grace in Christ. So yeah, churches are filled with sinners. You're in a church long enough, you're going to be sinned against so it might be that you were sinned against grievously in some church. But, but that doesn't undo the fact that for you to now turn your back on Christ's bride, who He commands you to be in community with, is a personal sin between you and God. Or, or I'll tell you another example. You might have a spouse who betrayed you. You might have a husband or a wife who walked out on you, who, who had an affair on you. But their betrayal does not give you permission to now run around yourself, right? Okay, so we're not allowed to use suffering, but there's the temptation to look at my suffering and to use my pain to justify my own disobedience. And David is praying here in the middle of his suffering that God will help him walk down the path of God's truth. That God will keep David anchored in the guardrails of God's commandments was asking for guidance. Here's the third thing. Excuse me, the fourth thing. There's a prayer for forgiveness. Verses 6 and 7 now. David says, Remember, O Lord, Your tender mercies and Your lovingkindness, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. According to Your mercy, remember me for Your goodness' sake. Oh Lord, now do you see what's happening in those two verses? There are things that David wants God to remember and there are things that David does not want God to remember. Do you see it? What does he want God to remember? He says, remember me based on your tender mercies and your loving kindness. That The Hebrew word tender mercies, there's an interesting word because it comes from the root word for womb. And the idea is it's... It's the affection that a mom has for the child of her womb. So think of a mom holding her six-month-old baby in her arms. What's that mom's disposition toward that child? Well, it's affection and it's protectiveness and it's tenderness and it's compassion all rolled together. What David is saying, that's God's disposition toward His people like a mom's attitude toward the child of her womb. So remember me according to your tender mercies and according to your loving kindness. This is a word that we've seen a lot in the Psalms. It's the Hebrew word hesed. And I've made the argument that it is one of the most important words in the Old Testament. It's the Old Testament word for God's covenant loyalty. Loyalty. It's the word for God's steadfast, unbreakable love for His own. Ralph Davis described it as love with super glue on it. So hesed is the love that God has for His people. It's not mainly a love of emotion, it's a love of commitment. God has pledged Himself and God has bound Himself to His people. And how strong is that pledge? There's a great picture of it in the book of Exodus. Do you remember in Exodus, right after God rescues the people of Israel from Egypt, they were slaves, God intervenes, God frees them from Egypt, God leads them to Mount Sinai and gives them His law, so that as God's people, they now know how to live as His people, so God's just loading them with blessings. Of all the people in the world, they're given the law of God. Of all the people in the world, They're given the sacrifices. Of all the people in the world, God promises they'll know His presence in a special way. So just an abundance of blessings. So what happens right on the heels of that? Right on the heels of all of these blessings, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to meet with God. And what happens while he's gone? Well, they get all their gold jewelry, and they melt it down, and they fashion it into a golden calf that they start worshiping. Now, God's just rescued them, God's just given them the terms of their covenant, and instantly they break it. It would be like, it would be like getting married and the wife having an affair on the wedding night. I mean, that's basically what Israel does. God makes this covenant and immediately, immediately they turn away. And so Moses just begins pleading for mercy. He starts intervening for Israel, asking for God not to abandon them, but he's sure that he will. I mean, how could God possibly stay committed to such a rebellious, idolatrous people? But God tells Moses that he will stay with Israel. And Moses doesn't understand how God could possibly do that. How, God? How, how can you stay with us? And God answers Moses by reminding Moses of who he is. And listen to how God defines himself to Moses. This is Exodus 34, verse 6 says, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Do you see the word goodness? That's our word, hesed. The, the uh, translators aren't sure how to translate it because it can be translated in a million different ways. But God defines himself as abounding, in this covenant love. God is abounding in steadfast commitment. He's overflowing with loyal love for His people. It's love with super glue on it. And you'll notice that David says that God placed this love on His people from of old. That means God has always been this way. Christian, get what this means. You might have just started loving the Lord two weeks ago when you trusted in Him. You might have just started loving the Lord 30 years ago when you came to faith. But He did not just start loving you. God didn't fall in love with you because you were such a great catch. God placed His love on you before you ever knew Him. The way Ephesians 1 says it is that He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And in love... He predestined us to the adoption as sons. So God's love for you didn't just start, which means God's love for you won't just end either. So as far as you look back that way, God's love is there. And as far as you can look forward that way, God's love is there too. And David is saying to God, Lord, this is what I'm banking on. I am banking on your tenderness towards your children. I'm banking on your covenant loyalty to your own. Remember that. But what does he not want God to remember? David says, Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. What does David mean when he says, Don't remember my sins? God's omniscient, right? So is he just hoping, crossing his fingers hoping God might have a senior moment here and forget what David did. That's not what he's asking for. To remember in the Bible, when it talks about sin, it's the idea of remembering something to hold it against you. That's what David is praying. He's saying, Lord, don't hold my former sins against me. Now, why is he praying that in his suffering? I think there are two things that could be going on. One is sometimes our suffering comes as a result of sin. And that can be the case where it's my own foolishness that leads me into some trouble. And so it's good to examine my heart and confess sin. Or God also can use trouble to reveal sin. To kind of flesh out, to cause to rise to the surface problematic attitudes. And so it's always good in trials to examine my heart and confess sins to God. But I don't think that's all that's going on here with David. Because do you notice that David especially refers to the sins of his youth. You know, one of the things that can happen when you're going through some time of intense suffering, when you're already worn out and you're already beat down, is the sins of your past can come parading through your mind. Have you experienced this where you're going through some trial and you start thinking about some of the things you've done in your past former sins kind of creep up in your mind. And even though it might have been 20 years ago or 50 years ago, those sins creep into your mind and you feel just as guilty and just as ashamed as you did when it happened. And you might might even start thinking, well, this is why this is happening. This is God getting me back. This is me getting what I deserved. And God is paying me back for what I did all those years ago. And if you've ever been there, it can be absolutely crippling. And I think that's what's going on with David here. He, he is remembering his former sins. So he is praying that God will not remember his former sins. And Christian, I would just remind you this morning, if your faith is in Christ, he doesn't. It just was God's providence that our fighter verse this week, the verse that Justin opened with was Isaiah 43, 25. Did you notice it? Did you notice that, that remember language in the fighter verse? I'll read it again. Says, ah, this is God speaking to his people. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember Your sins. What does God promise to His people? That He doesn't remember our sins. That means He doesn't hold our sins against us. Now just pause there. Listen now. God has every right to hold my sins against me forever. Every right. Because my sins weren't just ambiguous acts against some written rule somewhere. My sins were personal offenses against God. So God is the offended party in every one of my sins. Which means God has the right to hold my sins over my head forever. He would be perfectly right and perfectly just. You remember Nathaniel Hawthorne's book, Scarlet Letter, where this lady is supposed to wear the scarlet A as this constant reminder of her sin and her shame. God has the right to, to sew the scarlet letter on my soul. In fact, Scarlet letters. He he could fill up my spiritual robe with the letter of all the sins I've done. He has every right to make me carry the guilt and carry the shame of that forever. But the Bible promises that for everyone who repents of their sin and puts their faith in Jesus and what He's done for us, God doesn't hold the sins against us. And listen, do, do you know why God doesn't hold those sins against you, Christian? God doesn't hold your sins against you because your sins were held against Jesus at the cross. So the scarlet letters that should be sewn on my spiritual robe were sewn on Jesus' spiritual robe at the cross instead. He bore the guilt. He bore the shame. So I don't have to live my life under this constant weight of shame and under this constant threat of guilt because he took it for us. So in Christ, he does not remember our sins. He's praying for forgiveness. Here's the fifth thing. We're back again to a prayer for guidance. Look at verses 8 through 10. Back to a prayer for guidance. He says, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. The humble, he guides in justice, and the humble, he teaches his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep His covenant and His testimony. So we're back to David's need for guidance. But what he's doing now is he's telling us the kind of person who can expect to receive help from God. So who does God help? Who does God teach? Do you see it? He says He teaches sinners in the way. Man, that is fantastic news. So what's the first criterion for the kind of person God teaches? God teaches sinners. Okay, I meet that criteria. But it's not the only one. What's the next criteria? David continues in verse 9 and says, The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his ways. Now we got the other word. God guides humble sinners. So that means not every sinner can expect help from God. In fact, we're told in the Bible that there's a particular kind of sinner who God doesn't help. He actually opposes. What's the verse that is repeated several times in the Bible? God resists the proud. God actively opposes the proud. But the second half of that verse is God gives grace the humble. It's like humility draws the gaze of God. And humility means I see myself in light of my sin and I see myself in light of God's holiness. I see my sin for what it really is and I see God for who He really is so there's no pretense, there's no games, there's no cover up. I just lay my soul and I lay my sin Bear before God. That's humility. We we sang earlier the hymn from John Newton, uh, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. Newton also has a really well-known quote from later in his life that I think typifies humility. And you remember where Newton in old age says, My memory is nearly gone now, but two things I remember. What are the two things Newton said he could remember? Two things I remember. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. That that is the essence of humility, to sing myself and sing my sin as it really is before God. God helps humble sinners. Then there's one more criteria. According to verse 10, who does God lead down the path of mercy and truth? Look at what it says. It says, To such as keep, his covenant and His testimonies. You remember that word covenant? A covenant is a binding relationship. So, so God has established a binding relationship. We didn't create this. We were enemies. We were outside, away from God, under the judgment of God. But through Christ, God has established a covenant. Jesus secured this through what He did on the cross, and we're brought into this covenant through grace. God, we're told in the Old Testament, God takes out the heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. God binds you to Jesus through faith. It's all a work of mercy. But what do those who have been brought into covenant with God do? Those who have been brought into covenant with God keep His covenant and His testimonies. Now get what David's saying. David's not saying that we get in on this relationship with God by obeying Him. No, this this relationship with God is by grace. Our, our relationship with God is secured by grace. All, all of that's true, but our relationship with God is indicated by obedience. I mean, th- think of the think of the Great Commission in Matthew twenty eight, where Jesus gives instructions to His church, and our mission is to go make disciples, right? Preach the gospel, call people to turn from their sin, come and follow Jesus. But what then is it that followers of Jesus do? He tells us a couple things in the Great Commission, doesn't he? What what do followers of Jesus do? Well, Jesus tells us to baptize them. So followers of Jesus externally show what's happened through baptism, but what's the other way that we show we're followers of Jesus? Let's just read the Great Commission. How about that? Matthew 28. Starting in verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Notice the next part. Teaching them to observe or obey all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So disciples of Jesus get baptized. And what else marks us off as disciples of Jesus? We seek to obey the things that Christ commanded. So salvation is an internal work of God, but there are at least two external indicators that I'm in this saving relationship. Externally, I show it by getting baptized. And then externally, uh, a relationship with Jesus shows by a desire, a striving for obedience. Now make sure you pause there and think about that. Because we live in a part of the country where there are scores of people who claim to be in the covenant of salvation. There are scores of people who would claim they have a saving relationship with Jesus who have no interest in obeying Jesus whatsoever. In fact, the terminology that you so often hear in the West today is you hear people all the time say, you know, I'm spiritual, but I'm not really religious. Have you heard people say that? And normally what they have in mind is, I want some kind of connection with this higher being. I want to believe I have a connection to God or whoever is there. I just want to live my life my own way. I want a connection to this higher power, but my connection to this higher power comes on my own terms. It's not going to entail any disciplines. It's not going to entail any obedience. It's going to be, I'm going to write the terms of the covenant, in other words. You see how that is the most typical, prideful, western way of thinking about God. I'm going to have a relationship with God, but I'll decide what that relationship looks like. Let me tell you, you will not decide the terms of that relationship. The God who made you decides the terms of that relationship. The God who made you decides who He is, who you are, and how you connect Him. So yes, yes, Jesus is an atoning Savior. But Jesus is also an authoritative ruler. And you cannot have Him as Savior while at the very same time you reject Him as ruler. And so David is highlighting here those who who can expect help from God. And what he's saying is God gives this guidance to humble sinners who are in covenant with God. So he's not telling us so much how God guides us, as much as he's telling us the kind of person that God does God, You get that? He's, he's laying out the sort of person who can expect guidance from God. Humble sinners who are in covenant with God. That's who he got. All right, here's the next thing. Number six, we're back to a prayer for forgiveness. Verse 11. David says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is... Great, I just want to highlight one thing there. What does David say about his iniquity? Does David say, Lord, please forgive me, because what I did really wasn't that bad. Lord, please forgive me. I didn't didn't really mean it. What does David say? He says, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. In other words, pardon my iniquity, for it is immense. David doesn't try to minimize his sin, he sees his sin for what it is, which is one of the prerequisites for knowing God's forgiveness. Make sure you get this, God's grace towards sinners is overflowing. Paul tells us in Romans, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. So this is fantastic. God's grace is higher and deeper and greater than the worst of our sins. But listen, the path of grace is the path of repentance. If you will not repent, if you will not call your sin what it is, you close yourself off to experiencing God's grace. One of the verses that most of us teach kids to memorize very early is 1 John 1, 1.9. Right, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Wonderful promise. God forgives and cleanses sinners. But, what's the prerequisite there? We have to confess. Confess is homo legeo. It's Legaeo means to say. Homo means the same. So it literally means we have to say the same thing. We have to say the same thing that God says about our sin. I have to agree with God's verdict on my sin to know His cleansing forgiveness. So as long as you, listen, as long as you agree with what your friends say about your sin. Because you might have friends who say it's no big deal. We're living in a culture that most likely says, whatever that sin is that's haunting you, you don't need to worry about it at all. As long as you agree with what they say about your sin, you close yourself off from God's cleansing and forgiveness. Now, God requires that we say what He says about our sin. We side with God against our own sin. And where there's real repentance, there is the promise of deep forgiveness. Okay, so whatever that sin is that you're struggling with, that you're tempted to listen to the voices around you and go, it's not that Big of a deal. Hear David here saying, God, pardon me because my sin is great. Make make that your prayer to the Lord. Own it. Don't minimize it. Lay it out honestly and know the power of God's grace. Here's the seventh thing. Seventhly, there's a prayer for guidance, verses 12 through 14. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall He teach. Notice this teach language again. Him shall He teach in the way He chooses. He Himself shall dwell in prosperity and His descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear Him and He will show them His covenant. Who does God teach according to this passage? He teaches the person who fears Him. We've we've ran into that phrase a bunch in Ecclesiastes. Fearing God is the idea of a trembling trust in God. And if you fear God, He promises to teach you. That's verse 12. If you fear God, He promises to bless you. That's verse 13. And if you fear God, He promises to commune with you. That's verse 14. In fact, the language in verse 14 says, "...the secret of the Lord." is with those who fear Him. The secret of the Lord. It's the idea of confiding in somebody. Think about it in your own life. Who do you confide in? Who do you share your secrets with? The person you're closest to, right? Well, that's the way David is describing this. The person who fears the Lord has close, intimate fellowship with God. And David adds, He will show them His covenant. See, you can be in covenant with God through faith in Jesus and not see the full beauty of that covenant. Just like you could walk into the Sistine Chapel and marvel at how beautiful the walls are and never actually look up and see the mural that's on the ceiling. You can be in it and not see all the aspects of it. Or maybe think about going to some historic site. Imagine going to Mount Vernon, George Washington's home, or going to Arlington Cemetery. And there are two ways that you can walk through a site like that. You can either get a tour guide to show you around, or you can decide you're going to do it on your own. You can just walk around yourself and read the markers and look at the sites and then leave. And if you do it that way, I'll tell you by experience, you'll miss about 90% of what is actually there. But if you have a tour guide, they can, they can help you see all the richness and show you all the details that you would miss own your own. There's a richness to it and a depth to it that you didn't even know was there. And David is saying that's what God gives to those who fear Him. When you first put your trust in Jesus, man, your heart soared at the thought of being forgiven. Your heart, heart soared at the thought of your shame being lifted. But at that moment, you don't understand anything of the depth of election. Or what it means to be adopted by God. Or what glorification looks like in the Bible. But God promises that for those who fear Him, He unfolds the glories of the covenant. There's guidance that God gives. Then here's the last thing. Number eight. There's a prayer for relief. Let's just read from verse 15 through the end. David says, My eyes are ever toward the Lord. For he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I'm desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look on my affliction and my pain. Here's forgiveness again. And forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me. For I wait for you. Now get what's happening here with David. How does David feel during all this? He says that he feels desolate. That means he's alone. He's afflicted. His troubles are enlarging. Yet in the middle of all this, David says that his eyes are fixed on the Lord. He's not turning away. Is David hurting? Yes. But is David still trusting? Let me ask it it this way. Can your heart be breaking and your heart be clinging to the Lord at the same time? And the answer is yes. In fact, that sort of trembling trust honors God. That's what David is expressing, that mixture of trust. Pain and faith is blending together. And notice again, he said in verse 21, let integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. I think the integrity and uprightness he's talking about there is God's integrity and uprightness. That God had always done what was right by David. God had always been faithful to David. And so David is saying, "I, I am not turning away from God now. It made me think this week of the uh, story of the church father, Polycarp. You might remember the story. But Polycarp was a first century Christian. He was actually discipled by the Apostle John. And he lived a very long life. And in Polycarp's old age, he was uh, arrested by the Roman authorities and dragged before the magistrate. And he was commanded to say, Caesar is Lord. You'll remember that was one of the huge sticking points for first century Christians is the Romans required their citizens to burn a pinch of incense to the emperor and to say, Caesar is Lord. But Christians wouldn't do it. They would only say, Jesus is Lord. So Polycarp was dragged in front of the authorities and commanded that if he did not curse Jesus and say, Caesar is Lord, that they were going to burn him at the stake. And just before they burned him at the stake, Polycarp said, Eighty-six years I have trusted Him, and He has done me no wrong. So how could I now curse the King who saved me? You see what he's saying? He's saying, He has always been faithful to me, so how could I turn away now? That, that's what David is saying at the end of this song. His lifestyle. And Christian, your life is a testimony of God's faithfulness. It is one long story of God's goodness and God's mercy and God's strength in your difficulties. And so David says, I wait for you. You might have even noticed that prayer shows up three times in this psalm. I wait for you. That means, God, I trust in your timing. I trust it in your wisdom. I trust in your plan. And he ends it by expanding it. Verse 22, and we're done. Where he says, "Redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. So this first twenty one verses of this psalm is a personal prayer from David to God, but David knows that it's bigger than him. David knows that what what he experienced here was not unique to him. David was not the first person to feel alone. David was not the first person to feel overwhelmed by guilt about his past sins. David was not the first person to feel like his enemies had him surrounded. David was not the first person to to hurt so bad it felt like he couldn't breathe. And so what David is doing in these last few verses is he's reminding us that his prayer is our prayer. Christian, do you need guidance? You need forgiveness? You need help? You need relief? Relief? Well, what david's done here is he has marked out a path for us to feed for forgiveness relief help god it's whatever it is follow david down this path in psalm 25 and lay it out before the lord